Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll have an in-depth discussion about the state's new two-year budget with the executive director of Policy Matters Ohio. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend presents information about the U.S. Supreme Court's decision regarding affirmative action, the upcoming special election for Ohio in August, and gun safety issues in Columbus. And Skip Mossick wraps up the hour talking with Caitlin Walcott from Ronald McDonald House Charities of Central Ohio. Their annual golf classic taking place at three area courses is tomorrow. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Hannah Halbert, who is the Executive Director of Policy Matters Ohio. How are you? I am pretty good. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for talking to us. What is Policy Matters Ohio? So Policy Matters is a nonprofit, nonpartisan uh, research institution in uh, Cleveland and Columbus. Uh, We focus on statewide policy that's going to help all Ohioans, uh, no exceptions. Is it fair to say on the political spectrum that you lean left? I think we often get labeled as being progressive or left-leaning as as far as think tanks go. I like to think that we follow the data <laughs> in a lot of these policies and really do try to put, um, you know, working Ohioans, low-income Ohioans uh, at, at front and center in the kind of work that we do. We want to make sure people are able to, you know, have a good life here in Ohio. Okay, and uh, the state budget is out, the two-year budget, 6,000 pages long, and uh, it's, it's, it's been uh, signed by the governor, and uh, you've got some interesting takes on it, some things in there that don't sit well with you. Oh, sure. Well, you know, it's a big policy document. I mean, this is really, it's, it's certainly going to set the tone for the next couple of years, but it really sets a course for Ohio over the long term. And um, there are some structural changes to Ohio's tax system that I think are really going to move us in the wrong direction over time. Well, it's interesting because one of the things that you talk about is this uh, continual cut in the state income taxes, which I think started under Governor Taft a long time ago. And policy matters has always been against that, right? Well, we've been tracking uh, income tax cuts for a few decades now. Uh, Since, let's see, 2005, uh, not including what just happened, we've lost about $8 billion, with a B, a year in tax cuts. So that's revenue that otherwise could have been used for schools or um, higher education costs, like lots of things that really help majority of Ohioans, you know, have some economic security or build on um, their economic security and have some economic mobility. And taking that amount of money out of the system, and we're adding another billion per year with the latest round of tax cuts, really does limit what we can do as a state to build that broad base of security, of economic security. You know, a lot of times politicians from either side of the aisle, when they talk about tax cuts, will talk about how it helps the low income. And yet, in this case, with a state income tax, if you make less than $23,000 a year, you're not going to get a penny out of it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the income tax is the only tax in Ohio that is based on your ability to pay. And so if you are in the top 1%, uh, 
uh, you're going to be paying a, a little bit more as someone in the lower, you know, 20 percent, uh, or that's how it's supposed to be. It's based on how you uh, have benefited from all the stuff going on in the state. If you're making good money, you know, you can contribute. Um, and so what happens when we cut those taxes and really move toward a more flat tax rate is that we're no longer uh, taxing people based on their ability to pay and treating everyone the same. Now, that has really uh, unequitable or inequitable results. So in this tax cut, the, the, the changes that were made in this budget, a lot of people are calling it a middle-class tax cut, but when we did the math, we found that this proposal that caused some changes in how the state does inflation adjustment, adjustments is likely to have a tax increase on the middle-income Ohioans, those in the working class, and those at the bottom, right? So it really is backwards as to what you would expect if it really is a, a tax cut for all. That tax uh, difference for the middle class, even in years when there's been some sort of a tax benefit, it's that's been minimal as well. I mean, there just hasn't been, you know, we've been hearing about state income tax cuts, as you said, for nearly 20 years. And yet, over the course of that time, a middle-income Ohioan, I'll bet you all of it hasn't even added up to more than a couple hundred dollars. You know, that's right, is that uh, those and the 60 percent <laughs> of Ohioans, the vast majority of us, don't see a whole lot of benefits from this kind of tax cut. Um, however, those in the top 20% see significant benefits. This, this, uh, the, the bill that just passed, uh, the richest Ohioans, so people earning over $621,000 a year, uh, their average income in that group is like $1.5 million, so they're doing okay. Uh, that group, on average, will see a tax reduction of more than $4,000 a year, while those middle-class Ohioans, so those are people, average income is like $61,000, they are going to see a slight increase. They'll be, on average, paying like 15 bucks more. Now, once that inflation uh, change uh, goes away, so that's supposed to be temporary, then it'll look like what we have seen in the past couple of budgets where middle-class Ohioans see very little benefit from this, this tax cut. But they sure are going to feel it whenever they're having to pay college tuition checks <laughs> for their children, uh, when their public schools don't have um, the recreation and after-school activities and they're paying fees on sports. Uh, when we can't get good teachers in the classroom or support teachers having longer careers because we can't get funding in the door. You know, that's how we pay for these tax cuts. It's really taking away from those institutions, either through cuts or just chronic underfunding, um, so we can make sure that those who are doing well can do a little bit better. And that, that just backwards <laughs> to how um, Ohio uh, should be run. Talking with Hannah Halbert, she's the executive director of Policy Matters Ohio. Well, if it seems to be bad public policy in that sense, 
Why is it so popular? I mean, does it, if a company like Intel is coming to Ohio, do they look at some of these numbers like bottom line figures of a state income tax? And are there parameters that make Ohio look more attractive when things like this are done to outsiders? So Ohio is already, in terms of both state and local taxes, we're already uh, below average, already, before these changes were happening. We're already a lower tax state. Um, and then <laughs> it's funny you mentioned Intel because we are sending billions in, in through tax incentives, tax abatements, uh, infrastructure uh, building to bring Intel here. And those packages are often offered up as, you know, requirements to bring out-of-state companies to the state of Ohio. And what we've seen is that often companies are just pitting states against each other <laughs> to get their best deal possible. And what we really should be thinking of in terms of public policy is how do we support the growth, expansion, and creation of businesses right here in the state of Ohio. So we don't have to get into this sort of um, race to the bottom competition. Uh, this kind of income tax cut, I, I doubt it is a blip on the radar for a company like Intel. Um, but if Intel can't get a workforce that is has the education they need, that can uh, get to uh, where they need to go for work, uh, they're going to really feel that. And that would be a critical factor. Uh, and that all depends on our state being able to fund things like schools, post-secondary education, infrastructure, roads, uh, and that takes revenue. And so, you know, there's lots of paths to economic growth and economic stability. Uh, what we proposed in our response to this budget is like, the path we should take should put the working people first, put the majority of Ohioans first instead of big business. And as you mentioned uh, at the beginning, this, this state income tax is costing billions per year now as it piles up. Of course, also there are people who say, this is my money. You know, this money belongs to state taxpayers. We earn the money and uh, we shouldn't give it away. But I guess one of your points is that that kind of money that's spent to lure Intel, there'd be more of it available if we had not made these adjustments to the state income tax. Right, yeah, there, there would be more money that we could uh, drain from the coffers, so to speak, you know. Um, Houston, I believe, they had a, a press conference uh, at the beginning of this budget cycle, and, you know, what they talked about was workforce, workforce, workforce. When they were asked, how about taxes, they were like, hey, this is, taxes aren't the problem, it's the workforce, we've got to have people who are ready, able, educated, ready to go. That, those are problems that the state could solve by investing, not through tax cuts and this sort of revenue giveaway. Well, some of the things in the budget, education-related, they're capping the inflation on tuition at 3% rather than cost of living, and they're also providing scholarships for top students in high school. Are there elements of, of that or other elements of the budget that you do like? You know, uh, one really significant positive in the budget is 
what's going on with K through 12 uh, funding for public schools. So Ohio has had a long-standing problem with having uh, inequitable school funding. So schools, if you were in a high property tax uh, generating area, you'd have a lot of money for your schools. If you were in a low uh, property tax area, you wouldn't have so much money. So kids were receiving very different experiences in school, and that's actually contrary to Ohio's constitution. So uh, finally, in the last budget, Ohio came up with a plan, it was bipartisan, to solve that problem. They created a new formula, based it on the actual cost of educating kids, and put some money behind it. And uh, this budget uh, continues on that path, and that's a very good thing for Ohio kids. They improved some of the cost estimates. Um, they gave a small, <laughs> a small increase for uh, the base cost for teachers. So in Ohio, the starting for teachers could be as low as $30,000 a year, and they moved that up to $35,000. So, so that is... Um, a really positive step from this budget, and I'm, I'm glad they retained that. Uh, there's some uh, money to make more school, more kids eligible for free lunch, which is helpful. Uh, Medicaid will be extended, basically continuous coverage for kids up through age three, so that they can, you know, don't they have continuous care? They have continuous coverage. Um, so there are some positives. Uh, it's not all bleak, but the positives that we're seeing compared to these really deep, long-term sort of structural changes and how Ohio uh, takes in revenue, uh, it, it doesn't quite, it's just not enough. And this is really, a, this is a golden opportunity for Ohio. We have not had uh, this positive of a state budget revenue situation in, in decades. Um, this was the time, because we have federal money, we've had uh, growth in uh, income for folks in Ohio, thanks a lot to, the, to how recovery has been going. We are sitting pretty, finally. And instead of investing that, to, to really solve some of these problems. You know, Ohio's sort of standing on education is low. We have terrible rankings on child hunger, child economic security. Instead of really investing in solutions to those things that hold a lot of people back, we're just gonna do more tax cuts. That is it's such a missed opportunity. In reading some of the responses from uh, some of the, the Democratic legislators, and I, I've seen this happen before where they can say some scathing things about, about the budget that they don't like, but when you kind of look at the overall tone, you kind of get the impression sometimes that they think it's not as bad as it could have been given how badly we're outnumbered at the state house and we kind of dodged a bullet. <laughs> could be worse. Absolutely. I mean, this could, we could draft a, a worse budget than the one that, that we ended up with, right? The kicker, though, the trick is that 
I don't actually think, and Policy Matters certainly doesn't think, that Ohio should just have to deal with, well, it's not as bad as what it could have been. <laughs> you, know, that's a, you know, that's a hard sell. I actually think Ohioans deserve a budget that works for them and not one that's just like, well, could have been a lot worse. <laughs> So what about in terms of uh, Medicaid? You know, some states that, that expanded Medicaid have dropped that expansion. What is, uh, what's Ohio's situation? So on, in terms of Medicaid, uh, one significant change that's kind of, in a way, DeWine kind of kicked this down the road a little bit, but the uh, Department of Medicaid is going to have to come up with a work requirement program and try to get a work requirements waiver through uh, in 2025. And so that's going to be a pretty significant uh, administrative hurdle, a pretty significant barrier for folks. A lot of people are probably um, could be set up to lose their health insurance just through the, the process of, of instituting such a plan. Uh, those kinds of work requirements, particularly in when it comes to, to health insurance coverage, just don't make sense. They don't make sense in terms of the bureaucracy, the cost of implementation, the cost of sort of uh, managing those systems. And so that's going to be a significant uh, threat to that program here in Ohio. Hannah Halbert, she's the Executive Director of Policy Matters Ohio. I did want to ask, the Ohio Department of Education is becoming the Ohio Department of Education and Workforce with a a cabinet-level position, which means that the state school's superintendent's powers are kind of stripped, as is the school board, uh, putting more of that into the governor's office. What is your take on that? Yeah, you know, this has been uh, kind of a political football, and that change... uh, basically take over of the school board has been a piece of legislation that's not been able to pass like it's not been able to make it over the line because it's been so controversial um so it got dropped into the budget and it finally you know it made it through the concern with that is that we are now going to further politicize a piece of education and the way that education has been going over the last a year or so, uh, it's already too much, too much of that partisanship kind of ideological um, stuff leaking into the schools anyway. And so, you know, this seems like a, a, a very, you know, a way to really limit what is possible in the independence of the, the board. Um, that, again, seems like the wrong kind of direction for the state. Even when, uh, even if a, a controversial issue, whether it passes or fails, and we've seen this in the last year with the school board, at least there are a lot of uh, public meetings and chances for people to speak out, and you're afraid that maybe that'll be diminished? Well, it becomes, it becomes a, a position that the governor and the governor's appointee gets to really set the tone. And so then it becomes more of a partisan. This is a uh, an executive office uh, uh, position that could, you know, threaten some of the independence of what uh, we really need from our uh, state board of education. And uh, that just doesn't seem like the way Ohioans would want their schools to be run. I mean, there's. Um, there's always the desire for more local control. 
community engagement and to see this sort of shift into more about politics, more about partisanship, um, just just seems unneeded, if not uh, damaging over the long term. School choice has greatly expanded, but at the same time, so was funding for public schools. So, you know, I think a lot of people think, if I'm not confident in the school that my child is going to, why can't I have a choice to take them somewhere else more easily? So the, the voucher program, I think it's talked about as, as school choice or funding school choice. Um, what's actually happening in the voucher program is that most of those kids that are getting a voucher were already enrolled in private school. So it's not like they're sort of jumping shit from their public school and going to the private school and the voucher was the thing that made the difference. They're already there. Uh, this budget is sending about $2 billion, which would be to private schools through the voucher program. And again, largely funding kids that were already going um, and that means there's $2 billion less in the sort of shared uh, bank account of the state to go to other things, like fully implementing the Fair School Funding Program. We're only, uh, I think, two-thirds through with that. Um, or doing wellness programs, uh, behavioral and mental health services, all kinds of things that, that we could do to uh, benefit more Ohioans uh, than funding this voucher program. Now, public schools are educating about 90% of Ohioans' kids. And so we're willing to spend $2 billion, which I believe will be, um, we've not finished the analysis on it, but that's going to be quite a hefty bit of a chunk of change compared to what the increases in terms of schools to institutions that are only educating a small minority of kids who are already most of them already there. And at schools that do not have to accept all kids. And so the choice is largely up to the private school and who and who who comes in their door to be educated um, at their place. So it is one thing to talk about this kind of voucher program if Ohio's public schools had all that they needed quite another whenever schools and there were young people out of the state house frequently frequently this session talking about some of the conditions and needs of their schools so um two billion dollars uh incomes up to 450 percent of poverty so 135,000 for a family of four will get the the full voucher uh, those over that amount will get something. They'll get a check. There's going to be a sliding scale uh, for higher income. So this is going to some of that billion. You know, some of those billions are definitely going to families that already have their kids enrolled, have never thought about sending their kids to a public school, and who have no problem footing the bill. And that just doesn't make sense for you know at a time where you know Ohio. Uh, kids are, are struggling. We have these third grade reading requirements that we're really struggling with. Kids are really struggling. It just doesn't make sense that that's a good use of the money. So it sounds like you're saying, like the state income tax cut, when you say it out loud quickly, it sounds good. And when you read a headline, it sounds good. But it's, it's for the most part, benefiting a, a tiny portion of Ohio. 
that's right. And that's, you know, that's something I, I sometimes feel frustrated uh, during budget season because, you know, hey, it's a tax cut. Isn't that great? And it's like you peel back the cover a little bit and it's like, oh, no, <laughs> this is not great. Um, Ohio, they also, uh, this budget also cutting um, the commercial activities tax, that's Ohio's general business tax. And that's another change that sounds kind of good on the on the surface, but whenever you look at how that impact will land, it pretty quickly uh, is clear that it's going to go to big, big business and not Main Street, not moms and pops, like um, two-thirds of the businesses that are going to see this cutter paying like $150 in taxes. <laughs> Those who are earning more than $6 million in receipts, they're going to see uh, 10,000 plus savings. So again, it's another impact where, you know, the little guy is not going to see much of a difference. Like 150 bucks, you're going to buy some, going to take care of your, I don't know, your paper bill or something for your business. Um, but those companies with $6 million plus are going to see a significant tax reduction. The governor has been uh, uh, making a big point about uh, this third grade reading guarantee and wants to switch to different programming, focusing more on phonics and kind of getting back to old school learning of reading. Uh, What is your take on that? You know, we haven't looked into that as a policy issue. I think that uh, there are certain, certainly experts on child development, child learning and reading that could weigh into that. What's clear, though, is that in terms of early childhood education and even things like early child care, so parents' access to child care for tiny kids, tiny babies, there's this real, real need for Ohio to, to just do a better job in that. And that is going to have a huge impact on how kids are going into the third grade, how they're faring in the entire their entire education career, their likelihood of going to post-secondary education. And it's those early years where we see um, very little movement on expanding the uh, expanding the income eligibility limit for uh, publicly supported child care, so publicly subsidized child care, you have to earn less than 145% of poverty to get some help with child care. Um, we have the Step Up to Quality program that is intended to make child care programs um, have, have quality ratings and meet certain standards to participate in the public child care funding programs. Um, which seems great, and it is great, and we want that high-quality uh, care experience for all kids in Ohio, but there's no increase in the budget for workers who are providing that care. Uh, there was a scholarship program to at least help child care workers uh, in their education because part of the quality uh Part of the quality ranking uh, is determined by the number of workers who have a bachelor's degree or higher. So there was a scholarship program to have out on that, and that was deleted. And so there's these foundational, I mean, just very basic things that Ohio could really 
use that two billion for, or use the use the billion dollars a year that we're doing in tax cuts uh, that we could solve. We could do a better job at. So those fundamentals is where we have been focusing in terms of uh, what we've looked at in terms of budget impact and benefit. Interesting. It is, uh, as I said, it's a six thousand page document to chew on. <laughs> <laughs> There is a little bit of everything. There is some good, but the the fundamentals, you know, how we're getting money in the door and sort of the priorities of spending are, are just backwards. It's just backwards for a state like Ohio, and, and hopefully we'll see some changes, and uh, hopefully we have a continued fortunate position, economic position in Ohio, because when the recession comes, Talking with Hannah Halbert, she's the executive director of Policy Matters Ohio. Hannah, if people want to see uh, some of these uh, studies and research that you do, how do they find that online? We are at policymattersohio.org. Great. Thanks so much for your time and the information today. I sure appreciate it. Oh, happy to talk. Happy to talk. Thanks so much. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Coming up on Face the State, the former speaker is sentenced. The fate decided for Larry Householder. Affirmative action rejected. The U.S. Supreme Court made a landmark decision on this policy. We're talking with local education leaders about what comes next. Face the State starts now. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10-TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10-TV. A remarkable conclusion of a descent from power. Former Speaker of the Ohio House, Larry Householder, sentenced to 20 years in prison. Householder, the man who called the shots at the State House, was taken into handcuffs and will serve time for his role in a $60 million bribery scheme. We thank you so much for joining us for Face the State this morning. I'm Tracy Townsend. 10TV News reporter Lindsay Mills was in Cincinnati for this historic court hearing. Harsh words for Householder from a U.S. District Court judge saying the community's and court's patience with Larry Householder has expired. Former House Speaker Larry Householder arrived at U.S. District Court in Cincinnati once again wearing a baseball cap and a suit. What are you hoping for today? I really don't have a hope, so. Any final thoughts? Before handing down the sentence, the court heard from Assistant U.S. Attorney Emily Glatfelter, who said Householder didn't use bribe money to buy a Rolex. Instead, he used it to buy power. The government asked for the maximum sentence, 20 years. Following statements from his attorney, Stephen Bradley, Householder spoke, asking the judge to consider his family. He got emotional, talking about his wife and their time together, saying two people who spent decades as one will now spend the rest of their lives apart. U.S. District Court Judge Timothy Black sentenced Householder to the maximum maximum sentence 20 years. Here's U.S. Attorney Kenneth Parker on the message they hope this sends. That you better serve as a public servant. If you come to work and you're going to be an imposter, you may find yourself being prosecuted. And after Judge Timothy Black handed down that 20-year sentence, an unusual move. He ordered Householder to be taken into custody immediately. The defense has said it will appeal this sentence. In Cincinnati, Lindsay Mills, 10TV News. 
Householder is one of Ohio's most powerful politicians. He was when he was in office. He was twice elected speaker before his indictment. After his July 2020 arrest, the Republican-controlled House ousted him from his leadership post, but he refused to resign for nearly a year on grounds that he was innocent until proven guilty. In a bipartisan vote, representatives ultimately ousted him from the chamber in 2021, the first such expulsion in our state in 150 years. All told, five people and a dark money group have been charged so far for their roles in the scheme. A federal investigation remains ongoing. And now to Washington. Ohio colleges and universities are establishing their next steps after the landmark ruling from the Supreme Court on affirmative action. CBS News reporter Jared Hill has more. Dueling protests outside the Supreme Court, the court, powered by its conservative majority, ended the use of race-based affirmative action in college admissions. It means that you cannot explicitly use race as a factor in admissions. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts said admissions policies at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, saying in part, the student must be treated based on his or her experience experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race. In a scathing dissent, liberal justice Katanji Brown Jackson, the first black woman on the court, wrote with let them eat cake obliviousness, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. The cases were brought by conservative activist Edward Bloom's Students for Fair Admissions, arguing the schools discriminated against white and Asian applicants like Calvin Yang. It is my hope to see a renewed college admission system that recognizes and rewards the multifaceted talents and diverse perspective that each individual can bring to the table. Chief Justice Roberts wrote that universities can still consider the discussion of how race affected an applicant's life, say, in an essay. A notion, though, that Justice Sotomayor called nothing but an attempt to put lipstick on a pig. President Biden slammed the ruling. This is not a normal court. While Republicans praised the decision as ending discrimination. Jared Hill, CBS News. You can find more about that decision at 10TV.com. And now the question is, how will it really affect future college applicants? Reporter Casey Decker is verifying whether the decision will impact legacy admissions. The Supreme Court has banned universities from admitting students based on race. The decision prompted outcry from critics who say it'll hurt colleges' ability to maintain a diverse student body. And they argue the court is allowing a practice that harms diversity to continue legacy admissions. That's when a school gives a student a boost in the admissions process because their family members went to that same school. Studies have shown that at many elite schools like Harvard, legacy students are overwhelmingly white. So let's verify. Did the Supreme Court allow legacy university admissions to continue? Our sources are the majority ruling written by Chief Justice John Roberts and Ben Barton, a law professor at the University of Tennessee, who has also served on the school's admissions board. The answer is yes. The ruling allows legacy admissions to continue. The ruling dealt only with the practice of giving preference to applicants based solely on their race. And while legacy admissions have racial implications, they aren't solely about race. Those are may statistically result in uh, racial bias. <laughs> you can figure out which one it is. Um, but that is not based on race. And so that would be fine. And it's the same thing with poverty. 
um, you're allowed to take first-generation students or um, poverty into account. The ruling, in fact, explicitly left room for factors adjacent to race to be considered, saying, for instance, a student could write an essay about overcoming racial barriers as long as the consideration was based on their actions, not just race. So now, race-based admissions practices have been deemed unconstitutional. But other preferences, such as economic status, where the student is from, and legacy status, are still allowed. But those two could eventually be called into question, and President Biden himself suggested legacy admissions should be. Today, I'm directing the Department of Education to analyze what practices help build a more inclusive and diverse student bodies and what practices hold that back. Practices like legacy admissions and other systems <coughs> expand privilege instead of opportunity. With your Verify, I'm Casey Decker. And now to a Supreme Court decision that could impact redistricting all over the country. The high court lifted its hold on a Louisiana political remap case. Political analysts say this increases the likelihood that the Republican-dominated state will have to redraw boundary lines to create a second, mostly black congressional district. The map has white majorities in five of six districts, all currently held by Republicans. This is despite black people accounting for one-third of the state's population. Another mostly black district could deliver another congressional seat to Democrats. And that's why some Ohio groups are celebrating. Our organization, why I'm so excited, is that many people don't know but in states like Alabama and Ohio, there's lots of black folks in there. There are actually more black people in the state of Ohio than the state of Alabama. And so when we're talking about um, the state of black people in America, we're talking about access to the ballot and all like having representative democracy for black people in America. You know, many of those black people live in the state of Ohio. And so if in Louisiana or in Alabama, we can actually, you know, have courts Rule in, um, rule in favor to make sure that they actually can have a chance to be fully represented, it sets new precedent for places like Ohio, where those questions might come before different courts. And what we do want to see continue is that Black Ohioans are not ignored, that they actually um, are able to go out and cast a ballot and that their ballot matters, and that when they walk into the ballot box, the issues that matter in their community around school funding or making sure that we have a safety in our streets or or healthcare or you know good wages, whatever it may be, that when they go out and cast their ballot and raise their voice and talk to their um, elected official, that those folks both look like them, but also represent their interests more importantly. Ohio's congressional map dispute is still awaiting action in the U.S. Supreme Court. Ohioans are also preparing to vote in the August special election, and poll workers are working to make sure every voice counts. Here's 10TV's Kevin Landers. In fact, there will be fewer places for people to vote when voters head to the polls. The Franklin County Board of Elections says during a normal election, it would have 307 polling locations. But for the August 8th election, there will be 282. That's 7% fewer places for people to vote. The BOE says it has 25 locations that could not accommodate voters with such a short turnaround because of resurfacing floors, church camps, and other activities. There are also concerns about not having enough poll workers. A spokesperson for the Board of Elections tells 10TV, quote, our goal is to recruit 5,000 poll workers for the August election. As of now, we are a little above 50% of placement for Election Day. We are confident we will get to where we need to be. In an effort to attract more poll workers, Franklin County voted to increase the stipend for those who volunteer to $134. 
Kevin Landers, 10TV News. No phones allowed. Coming up on Face the State, why one school district in our state is keeping devices to a minimum. Protecting your students where legislation stands that could require AEDs at schools across the state. But first, the stars are coming to Columbus. Why the world of soccer will be centering on Central Ohio in 2024. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. It's soccer season right now, and last week it was a big announcement for Columbus and Major League Soccer. 10TV's Adam King was there for the announcement that's putting the capital city in the soccer spotlight. The chants are just the beginning. Look forward to the 2024 MLS All-Star Game being here in Columbus, Ohio. The lights will be shining on Lower.com in Major League Soccer's biggest moment. This is a dream come true for us, dream come true for, for Columbus. You couldn't walk past even the cookies without hearing the news. The newest star in Columbus wears 24. You know, this team now has captured the imagination uh, of the soccer market, you know, not just here in Major League Soccer, but really around the world. Look at where we are today. I mean, one of the great stadiums in the world. Garber calls it a crown jewel event in a crown jewel city. It's not just the MLS world. It's really the whole world of soccer is going to have our eyes on Columbus. The important aspect is it's not just a game. It's a week-long celebration. Really excited about the global stars uh, in MLS and the world descending on this pitch uh, just next summer. Just five years ago, chants of Save the Crew filled Columbus. And now, on a pitch that the fans helped build, the best in the league will put on a show. You know, we're so excited because it's hard to imagine that five years ago we were standing on the courthouse steps trying to figure out how to keep the team. And now being able to bring truly a worldwide event to Columbus, that's what it's really about. It's a win for the crew and a day to celebrate Lower.com, but it's also a massive day for the city. But you think of all the thousands of people that are going to come in here. Uh, they're going to stay one, two, three days. It's big for Ohio. It's big for Columbus. Um, you know, one night the whole world is going to be watching. And now the work begins to truly prepare for a soccer celebration that gives glory to Columbus. I mean, this is just what we've been building now for the last 25 years here in the community and um, how Ohio has just really accepted us. And now we're going to see the world accept us. Adam King, 10 TV Sports. Nearly 10,000 Ohio students will no longer be able to access their phones during the school day. The Akron Public School Board of Education just unanimously approved this new plan for students from 6th through 12th grade. Here's our sister station in Cleveland, WKYC. Almost anywhere kids go to school these days. Screen time is just too high. Cell phones have become part of the classroom experience. Cell phones for different reasons negatively impact uh, a lot of our kids. At Akron Public Schools, they found phones were also connected to the challenges students face, bullying, distractions, and mental health issues. And they kept coming back to the same thing, a cell phone, a cell phone, a cell phone. Steve Thompson says that's what led the district to a pilot program. This is a yonder pouch. Students in select schools were required to lock their phones into a yonder pouch that they would carry with them until the end of the day when... 
these lock unlocking mechanisms are hung in the high school hallways and middle school hallways. They take their yonder bag, click it, it opens, and off they go. A survey with nearly 200 teachers found 96% agreed that students are more productive when their phone is in a pouch. But I would submit to you that this is an effective policy. 77% of parents told the district they believe there are negative effects to using phones in schools, but nearly half also said cell phone use during school is necessary to support student learning. It seems to be more productive for our students in many regards to not have access to the phone during the day. Expanding the program to all schools would impact about 10,000 students between 6th and 12th grades. And ultimately, I hope that we see increased academic uh, achievement from our students because they're more focused and they're less distracted in the classrooms. State law could soon require AEDs in your child's school. Coming up, one district is already getting ahead of the curve. We'll take you there. And could Social Security go bankrupt? It's a claim circulating online. Our Verify team is on the case. Need to visit the Ohio BMV? Go online first. It could save you a trip. It's now easier and more convenient than ever to get what you need from the BMV online. Need to renew your driver's license? Renew online. And if you need to renew your vehicle registration, visit one of our new BMV Express kiosks or go online. If you do need to visit a BMV agency, use the Get In Line online tool, also found on the website, to save your spot and minimize your time waiting. For more services available online, check out bmv.ohio.gov. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Columbus City Council is fighting for gun safety locks. Police say last week a 12-year-old boy was arrested after he was involved in an accidental shooting that injured two 13-year-olds. Here's 10TV's Tara Jabor with what city leaders are trying to do, they say, to keep you safe. The city of Columbus fought back in the Court of Appeals to allow the city to implement gun safety measures. Kids, you know, randomly find guns or showing off guns have no idea how to use them uh, and then discharging them and killing, injuring uh or injuring others. And that's exactly why we have our safe storage laws. Recently, Columbus has seen several accidental shootings, including two in the last two weeks. According to Columbus police, they have responded to at least 36 accidental shootings in the last year. City attorney Zach Klein says he won't give up this fight. He wants parents to be held responsible for their guns. And we're going to do everything we humanly, possibly and legally can to ensure that uh, there is a duty imposed on parents and guardians in this instance to make sure your dar- your darn guns are locked. He believes the city will win the case. Klein says gun violence is a public safety issue, and it's a role of council to step up and make change. But he also says it's the role of the people. To vote people out of office that are standing in the way of public safety. Council member Emmanuel Remy says enforcing gun safety locks is common sense. That's the thing that just keeps me up at night. I have small children myself, and just understanding, you know, if, if they have a gun at their disposal, they, they, they tend to want to play with it. He says children's lives should be more important than a gun. He hopes for the best in the legal battle and wants to remind people that gun locks and safety boxes are available for free at fire stations and the health department. Hopefully that legal battle will be resolved and the, and the rights of our, us as a city to govern how we want to govern will be restored. Reporting in Columbus, Tara Jabor, 10TV News. 
There is a push to require all Ohio public schools to have AEDs. This is something we've been reporting and covering very closely since Buffalo Bills athlete DeMar Hamlin was injured on the field at Paycor Stadium in Cincinnati. One Northwest Ohio school already ahead of the curve. Kaylee Kirby at our sister station WTOL explains. And it is the one of the most major links in the uh, ch- chain of survivability when it comes to CPR. Uh, basically what it is is a very sophisticated device that is very easy to use. Private Sterling Ray with the Toledo Fire and Rescue Department says AEDs only require a little bit of training and the equipment basically walks you through the steps. Deliver shock now. Clear. Press the shock delivered. Now, Ohio lawmakers want to make these devices more accessible. And leaders at Washington Local feel like the district is out ahead of this. You never want to have to use one. But if a situation presents itself, whether it be a student or someone at a game, you want to be able to, to react immediately. And this is what this does for us especially having them at every location like the bill talks about. If passed, AEDs could be required in all public schools, some private schools, and sports and recreation locations. The bill is a direct result of Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin collapsing during a game from sudden cardiac arrest. At Washington Local, these devices are already in every school and staff are prepared to use them if needed. This is something our medical experts here in district and our district have recommended for years. We've had them at our we have them at a baseball facility, at our softball facility, at the football field, several inside. The bill has also passed the Ohio House and is currently in the Senate. Now, if the Senate approves it, it will go to Governor Mike DeWine's desk. 10TV's Kevin Landers covered local districts making this push. You can find his reporting right now at 10TV.com. The advocates observed Ohio's Elder Abuse Awareness Day. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost held a news conference really aimed at bringing together advocates and professionals to talk about effective strategies for dealing with the growing problem of elder abuse. It was called From Research to Practice. The 2023 gathering focused on the role that trauma plays in the lives and circumstances of older adults and the importance of using a trauma-informed approach in helping these victims. And A.G. Yost says his office is working with law enforcement really to make sure there's more research done to see how trauma impacts our elderly population and how to help victims and families cope with these kinds of incidents. Could Social Security soon go bankrupt? It's a question that many of you have asked. So we had Casey Decker with our verified national team look at the program's budget for some answers. Millions of retired Americans rely on Social Security checks to pay their bills. But several Verify viewers asked us if the program could soon run out of money. So let's verify. Will Social Security go bankrupt? Our sources are the Social Security Administration, AARP, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, the Congressional Research Service, and Joseph Cordes, a professor of economics and public policy at the George Washington University. Here's how Social Security's budget works. Revenue is collected from payroll taxes. Funds are distributed in the form of monthly checks to all the eligible recipients. If more money is coming in than going out, the excess gets put into a special trust fund. For decades, that was the case, as there were more workers paying taxes than recipients collecting checks. But in recent years, there have been more and more retirees, and those retirees are living longer. Meaning, Social Security is paying out more than it's taking in from payroll taxes. So how does SSA make up the difference? 
that trust fund. But of course, you can only do that for so long before the trust fund is depleted. Experts estimate that at the current rate, the trust fund could be out of money in about 10 years. So what happens then? Is the whole system bankrupt? No, because you still have payroll taxes coming in from everyone currently in the workforce. Experts say those taxes could cover 77% of the benefits any given year. So we can verify, no, Social Security won't go bankrupt, but the checks could get smaller. That reduction in benefits would make a huge difference for millions of Americans, and that's why advocacy groups are pushing Congress to find another funding source to close the gap. With your Verify, I'm Casey Decker. What can we verify for you? Send us an email or reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter to answer your questions about what you see online. The Susan G. Komen Race for the Cure is almost at the finish line for its fundraising campaign, and they've been asking for you to help cross it. The organization has been working for months to hit their $1 million goal. The executive director says the support has been great, and now they need one last push. We are surrounded by so much support and so much kindness and really people in Columbus who care about this mission that actually just means a whole lot to me as well. Now, as of last week, they were only $50,000 from their goal. They did kick off the 50 hours to 50K campaign. The money will fund breast cancer research and support survivors right here in central Ohio. And you can still help if you want to learn more or make a donation, there's a link to how to do that at 10tv.com slash featured links. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining us here on Face the State today. Take care. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Here's the fans' Skip Mossick. One of, if not the largest golf outings here in Columbus is coming up on July 10th with the annual Ronald McDonald House Joe Mortolaro Golf Classic. So big, it's held simultaneously on three different golf courses. Wedgwood, Tartan Fields, and Sayota Reserve. We're joined for a few minutes now by Caitlin Walcott, Director of Sponsorship and Events for the Ronald McDonald House Charities of Central Ohio. And, you know, Caitlin, before we talk about the golf classic, some may only be be familiar in name with the Ronald McDonald House. I guess tell everybody all that the house does. The house is quickly growing down here. If you have not been by recently, we are um, home away from home for families of seriously ill children um, here in Columbus being seen by any of the local hospitals and just trying to provide a space for them just to be stress-free, um, not worry about where they're going to lay their head at night, where their next meal will be, um, just really trying to help our families when they're going through a, a difficult time. Um, we currently are adding on 84 rooms to the house, so um, by the end of this year, we'll be back to the largest Ronald McDonald house in the world, um, which we're extremely excited about and be able to help over 6,500 families a year. Well, Caitlin, besides housing, what are some of the other amenities provided for those families who obviously have much more important things they're dealing with when they're there at the house? Yeah, so the house actually is comprised of three different programs, um, one of which is our family room. So we have a family room at our NICU unit at Riverside, as well as our behavioral health pavilion um, here with Nationwide Children. So they're basically a condensed down version of the house where families can go um, get a meal, get a shower, do some laundry, have a place just to sit and relax, um, since a lot of those 
facilities aren't um, set up for really in-person visits. They're smaller rooms or maybe not the meetings um, at the behavioral health pavilion can can they be a part of. So it just gives them a place to go work if they're still working. Um, so really great spaces. Um, we also have our care mobile, um, which provides care to underserved areas, um, you know, around Ohio. Um, and then of course the house, um, which has so many different rooms and, um, activities that are planned, um, really just trying to give the families everything that they could be missing back at home. Well, one of the biggest fundraisers is the annual golf classic coming up on July 10th. Uh, tell us about the day. Again, this thing is huge. You're taking up three golf courses to put it on. Yes. It's actually, um, I think one of the largest golf classics in central Ohio. So <laughs> Three courses in one day. Um, we're hoping for around 360 golfers again this year. Um, Wedgwood, Parton Field, and Scioto Reserve with our dinner back at Wedgwood. We're extremely excited. Um, hoping it'll be our largest one again, um, hopefully raising around 360000 for the house. Um, and it's just truly an incredible event. Um, July 10th this year. Um, and we're just really excited. All right. What's the best way to get information? Um, you can visit our website, um, rmhc-centralohio.org, and all the information as well as my information. Now, Caitlin, if people can't play or they have something else going on that day on July 10th, there's still an online component you know, for people to participate and to bid on some pretty cool items. I mean, tell us about that because you've had some really marquee auction items in the past. There is. Our auction will go live, um, and that'll be on our website and in email and social media as well so follow any of those um we're we're excited about the auction this year there's some really cool packages some you know sports tickets in there like osu and the crew and the blue jackets as well as some vacation packages out to vegas and colorado so really neat packages everyone should go and check it out you don't have to participate to in the outing in order to bid um same with our raffle you can participate in our raffle as well and then of course um just donate as well sounds terrific and caitlin while this show is about golf there are other upcoming fundraisers for people to mark their calendars to help support the house charity steer show at the state fair food truck expo and rackets for the rmhc at the country club at Muirfield village tell us about those yeah all three events are um you know supported by the community they're put on by the community and shows us to be the beneficiary and we're extremely excited to partner with all three again this year um they're all working extremely hard um the steer show is lining up all of their um you know, showcases and, and preparing their auction and, and we're excited for another fun event this year. Um, food truck festival, you know, either attend or if you want to come help out the house, we do need volunteers. Um, and you can sign up for that on our website too. come help us pour some beer and sell tickets. And it's a fun time. Do you still accept blankets, Caitlin? I mean, I know my kids made and donated several for school service projects over the years. And I know folks listening, have kids in similar situations. We do snack packs, um, welcome blankets. You can collect pop tabs and drop them off either here at the house or at Research Alloys. Um, they actually match uh, the donations um, for that program. So um, a lot of different ways to get involved with the house if you can't be here at the house. Um, we're also looking for supporters for when our kitchen will be shut down for about three months um, to help supply meals for the families. Um, and you can sign up for a meal time online on our calendar. Again, Caitlin, if people have any questions or want more information, best place to get it is where? The website, rmhc-centralohio.org. 
Caitlin Walcott. We love what you folks do at the Ronald McDonald House. Most of us hope we'll never need you, but it's wonderful to know that something like that is available if we ever do. Best of luck with your upcoming events, and we hope to see you at the Golf Classic on the 10th, okay? Okay, thanks, Kim. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation to the fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.